Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. We are doing a series that we are calling Your Family, Your Church, and the World. Today we start week seven of eight. So we're, we can see the light at the end of the tunnel here. Um, so this morning is entitled Hard Sayings, Jesus on the Family. Jesus never married. He never had children. And yet, millions of families today will testify that Jesus Christ is the very foundation upon which their families are built. And I find that interesting. You might wonder, well, how exactly does this work? Because we wouldn't normally recommend taking marriage advice from someone who's never been married. We wouldn't normally recommend taking parental advice from someone that has never had kids, right? But this is very, very different. Jesus said some very specific things about family. And the things that Jesus said about family have proven to be some of the most controversial things that he said. And before we go any further, um, I want to, to say right up front that I do not mean to posture myself this morning as any kind of leading authority on difficult Bible passages. So if you were expecting to hear the last word on something, you probably will be disappointed. I do not have God and his ways all figured out, and there are lots of questions that I don't have full answers uh, for. And the Bible is not an easy book. And there are a lot of difficult passages. On the other hand, I didn't just fall off the turnip truck yesterday either. So I hope that you'll uh, put your thinking cap on with me this morning and, and uh, walk through some of this stuff as we take a look at some of these uh, things together. Uh, first, just maybe just pause with me and pray with me if you would. Thank you, Lord, for that precious opportunity we have to be together today. I thank you for each one here today, young and old alike. Um, whatever our circumstance or situation, Lord, we're here today. We're together and I thank you for that, Lord, and I rejoice in it. And as we turn our thoughts and attention to your word at this time, Lord, we just pray that you would be our teacher, that you would give us hearts that are ready to, to hear from you and to um, surrender our lives uh, to you, as April mentioned, and that you would have your way in our hearts and in our lives this day. We just, right now, Lord, we just... We just surrender to you, um, and we thank you for your amazing love for us and your grace to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So my first observation that I want to highlight this morning is the fact that Jesus did not just say a few hard things. He said a lot of hard things. I would suggest to you that the overarching themes of his teaching 
we're radical. I think sometimes we fall into this, this idea that uh, Jesus' teachings are generally quite acceptable to our sensibilities with the exception of just a few hard things that we're not exactly sure what to do with. And I think what happens when we fall into that line of thinking, uh, not only do we end up missing the full import of the hard sayings of Jesus, I think we miss out uh, on much, if not most, of what he said overall. Uh, because we fail to recognize the radical nature of all of the key points of Jesus' teaching. Now, the advanced reading assignment that we sent out uh, asked, suggested that you read Matthew 10, Matthew 12, and Luke 14, some verses from each of those three chapters. Um, and uh, we're going to get to some of that this morning, Lord willing. But before we go... Uh, any, anywhere near there this morning, I would like to take a little bit of time to look at uh, the first, I, I, you say the first major teaching section uh, of Jesus found uh, early on in the book of Matthew. Uh, we refer to it often as the Sermon on the Mount. And I want for us to consider there a hard teaching of Jesus uh, that I think will help us better understand um, the hard sayings in general, including those that relate perhaps more directly or obviously to the subject of family. Now, you may be familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. I suspect many of you are. Different things stand out when you read through it. One of the things that I always uh, thought you know, stand out in the Sermon on the Mount is when Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. And if we take our time to read slowly through the Sermon on the Mount, we'll discover that the teaching of Jesus Christ was radical. There's not much of anything that I can find in there that I would call easy. It begins in Matthew chapter five, verse one, with Jesus saying, with the text saying, seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught them. And it ends after three whole chapters of Jesus' teaching. It ends with these words. It says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. The teachings of Jesus are radical in nature. Now, obviously, we're not going to go through the Sermon on the Mount this morning and take note of all of the radical things that Jesus said that day. Uh, suffice it to say, there are many, but I want to take a look at uh, at just uh, one section that doesn't normally make it into our hard sayings of Jesus list, uh, but should it, perhaps. It's a familiar passage. And again, my intent is not that we spend a lot of time here, but I, I, think, I think it could be helpful for us. It's Matthew chapter 6, and it's verses 25 through 33, 
you will probably recognize it and we'll put it on the screen as well. So Jesus is teaching here and he says, therefore I tell you, Matthew chapter six, verse 25 and following. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not more of more value than they? And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet, I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble." To appreciate a little of how radical Jesus is here in this passage, uh, consider the old King James Version, verse 25. Therefore I say to you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body what you shall put on. The admonition, take no thought, stated three times. Now, there's nothing wrong with reputable newer versions, and for the most part, they are to be preferred for different reasons that we don't have uh, time to go into today. Uh, it's not that the older version is, is better. It's just that in this passage, it is more literal. The idea is expressed in the newer versions using words like worry, uh, be anxious, but in Jesus' uh, literal words, the uh, more more literal, literal words, the radical nature of his teaching here really becomes obvious to us. He says, take no thought for your lives. Now, interestingly, Christopher Hitchens, how many of you recognize that name? Do you, okay. It's okay if you don't recognize his name. He was uh, uh, probably the most renowned uh, atheist of the 20th and 21st centuries, uh, very influential. Uh, he died uh, back uh, about a decade ago or so, I think 20, 2010, 2011, something like that, but so he's no longer uh, with us. Uh, but uh, um, Christopher Hitchens, in one of his lectures, referred to this statement that Jesus makes here, the King James says, take no thought for your life. Take no thought for tomorrow. And Christopher Hitchens uh, makes reference to it in a lecture that he did back in, I think it was 2008, maybe. Uh, and he, uh, he refers to it as the central doctrine of Jesus of Nazareth. I don't think we would consider it to be the central teaching of Jesus. 
But it's interesting that Hitchens uh, would suggest such a thing. And what's even more interesting is what he went on to say about that statement that Jesus made and how he reacted to this specific teaching of Jesus. He says in, in his speech there, as you can watch the video online, he says that Jesus' words here allow for no investment, no thrift, no care for your children, And he said, it is, quote, a ridiculous and immoral proposition. So Christopher Hitchens was scandalized by Jesus' words here in Matthew chapter six. Us, maybe not so much. (laughs) And why is it that we're not scandalized by Jesus' words? And I wonder maybe if it's because we miss just how radical the teachings of Jesus are. Not just a few things that he said that we don't know what to do with, but the central tenets of all of Jesus' teaching were radical. It can help to look at the literal words. There also, though, is the context. And Hitchens appears to have missed or ignored the context. We shouldn't. You uh, may have noticed, and you can see it there in the screen, that uh, chapter 20, uh, sorry, verse 25 begins with the word therefore, which means that the passage doesn't actually start in verse 25, right? Uh, The old Bible teachers used to say, every time you see the word therefore, ask what it's there for. So what was Jesus teaching about in the previous statements. What is the therefore, therefore? Well, if you back up just one verse, just one verse, verse 24 of Matthew chapter 6, it says this, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, take note of his words here, okay, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other You cannot serve God and money. That's some of the context, the immediate preceding context for Jesus' words, take no thought for your lives. So this beloved passage about trusting God to give us the nice happy lives we seek and expect is actually part of Jesus' teaching on finances or uh, possessions, or stuff. Um, And I hope you know that Jesus taught a lot on this subject, a lot. Uh, To give you an idea, 16 out of the 38 parables of Jesus were devoted to our relationship to money or possessions. You may have been here last fall when we did a whole series of messages that we called Stuffed. And that's what it was all about because it's a large uh, uh, teaching uh, subject. In Luke's parallel passage to this passage in Matthew, uh, Jesus' teaching about us not being anxious about our lives or what we will eat or what we will wear, etc., also begins with the word therefore, 
And if you go to Luke, you will see that um, prior to that, what we have is the parable of the rich fool. Some of you would be familiar with that. And it ends with these words just before Jesus says, therefore, do not uh, be anxious about your lives. Just before he says that, he ends the parable of the rich fool by saying, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious for your life, what you shall eat what you shall wear, etc. I have a, a book in my library written by uh, Peter Hitchens, Christopher Hitchens' brother, who happens to be a Christian. It's an interesting read. Um, but as I mentioned, Christopher Hitchens is, is, is uh, passed as of 2011, and everything that he thought and everything he taught has been eclipsed by the reality of what is for him. It's also interesting that Christopher Hitchens charged tens of thousands of dollars every time he spoke. How much did Jesus charge for the Sermon on the Mount, do you think? Yeah. Uh, Christopher Hitchens missed the point of what Jesus was saying. Uh, But his response to those words is a graphic demonstration to me of how radical Jesus' teachings were. When he uttered them, and today, with all of our affluence, we've never had more. We've never been more anxious. We think that stuff or money will provide peace of mind. Jesus taught that the pursuit of wealth actually robs us of peace of mind. But that's a radical thought. If you think about it, it's really astoundingly radical. The idea that we don't have to be preoccupied with things, but that we can trust God to take care of us is a radical thought. And it doesn't come easy. It is not an easy saying. Uh, the Greek word now is the word that's translated anxiety in the English Standard Version that we had on the screen earlier. Uh, W.E. Vine says it denotes uh, having a distracting care, a distracting care. It is to be distracted or preoccupied. It's a compound word which has the literal sense of being of two minds about something. It's a compound word that has the idea of being about two minds about something and Jesus uses it right after he says, you cannot serve God and money. 
Because you'll either hate the one and love the other or love the one and hate the other. Don't be divided in your, your mind. Remember Martha? Jesus said to Martha, you're anxious. Marim now, same word. You're anxious about many things. But one thing is necessary. And Mary has chosen that one thing it will not be taken from her. Imagine. Imagine living each day of your life with peace of mind. Free from worry. Trusting your Heavenly Father to care for you. It's pretty radical. Of course, there are many around us who, like Christopher Hitchens, identify as atheists. I think Jesus is far more concerned in his statements here about those of us who profess, profess faith in Christ but live as practical atheists. Do you remember when we were reading through Matthew chapter six, Jesus said, oh, you of little faith. The Gentiles who don't even claim to have a relationship with God, they run after these things. They're always in a hurry and they're always worried about all these things but your heavenly father knows you need what you need. But you're going to have to trust me on this. <laughs> it's pretty radical. Um, here's a quote from uh, Adam Holtz. Um, it's natural to hear Jesus' words as a command, and they are. Three times he says, do not be anxious. Take no thought. It's natural to hear Jesus' words as a command, and they are, but there is more here, an invitation. In Matthew 6, Jesus invites us to exchange the world's frantic anxiety for a life of trust day by day. God, by his grace, helps us all of our days, even before we remember to see life from his perspective. Yeah. Of course, you're probably, you're probably familiar with Philippians chapter 4, where Paul says, do not be anxious. Same word, marim now. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There's a reference in the song we sang earlier to that. That, that piece, right? So how can you be anxious about nothing? Answer, pray about everything. So, the first of the three passages that we sent out the advanced reading for was Matthew chapter 10. So let's take a, a look at that together. And, uh, yeah, Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 39, we'll just read through, okay? This would be on the list. 
the hard sayings of Jesus on the family. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Josh um, read this passage, uh, was that two weeks ago, I think? And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, as I mentioned, Josh read that passage a couple weeks ago, and he made a few comments about it then, which were, which were pertinent. He talked about uh, how you know, we shouldn't be thinking of this in terms of balance. It's more about priorities. Uh, our first allegiance, I remember he referenced that. He talked about our first allegiance being to God, you know, which comes first. What are, what are our priorities? Remember Jesus said to Peter on the, on the beach that day in John chapter 21, Peter, do you love me more than these? Remember the large, the huge catch of fish, you know, which is, you know, Fish might not be the thing that you're, that you're uh, in danger of having in your life as an idol, but for Peter, it represented his livelihood. And this was a monstrous big catch of fish, right? So Jesus said, Peter, do you love me more than these? I want to go over to, to Luke now, uh, Luke 14, which is, which is one of the other passages we sent out the reading, um, advanced reading suggestion on. Luke chapter 14, it's a, it's a parallel passage. And I want to take a quick look at what it says there. Um, Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 27. It says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Then Jesus goes on to use two illustrations. If you read it in advance, you'll know those two illustrations are one, a man who sets out to build a tower, and two, a king who sets out to make war. And in both cases, Jesus summarizes his concept of how we need to be ready to count the cost. And then in verse 33, he says... So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. I just want to read that statement again. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. I would point you back to Matthew chapter 6, and I would say this to you, that whether we are thinking of possessions or relationships. Following Christ means giving him first place in our lives in all things, all the time. Now, I recognize the word hate in the passage we just read uh, throws us. You know, when, it, when Jesus talks about hating his father, your father and your mother, he doesn't stop there. He talks about hating your wife and hating your uh, children. 
Uh, and that word hate throws us. So I, I just want to take a few moments, three things on this. It is a, it is a Semitic idiom or a figure of speech. Uh, you, can, you can appreciate this. I'll, I'll, I'll say th- three things on it. One, I'll give you an example in, in English. Well, it's not really English. It's maritime, whatever we speak here. But I'll give you an example from our context and our language and our culture. Uh, I would say the word pretty. When I say, Maria, you're pretty, you know what I mean, right? But what do I say when I look at your dog and say, oh, that's a pretty ugly dog? (laughs) And try to imagine yourself being responsible to translate that into another language. Pretty, pretty tough, right? Because it's an idiom. I know, I say pretty a lot. It's, a, it's, a, it's an idiom. It's a figure of speech. And so is the usage of the word hate here. Um, and so that's one thing is the English example, okay? Second thing is um, I'll show you biblically how this works really quick. Take a look at this verse. It's Genesis chapter 29, verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And verse uh, 30, which immediately precedes that. There's no reference in the, in the context here at all. There's no reference for anybody, of anybody hating Leah. But if you look at the verse that precedes it, uh, verse 30, what's it say? So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. In the Hebrew sense of this figure of speech, to choose someone over someone else is to hate that person. Um, one of the passages we read earlier actually used that. Uh, when Jesus talking about you cannot serve two masters, because you'll love one, you'll hate the other. To choose over someone is to hate. That, that's, it's, it, might, it might not make sense to you in your mind, but that, that's the, what the idiom, uh, how it's used and, and what it means. The third thing I would say on this subject is that, um, that the, the, the fact that this is true, that, that this explanation and this understanding is what we need to have when we approach the passage is confirmed by numerous passages throughout uh, the Bible and throughout the New Testament where we are commanded to love. Even, Jesus said, our enemies. Remember it says um, a man's enemies or a person's enemies will be those of his own household. He, uh, Matthew chapter 10. A man's enemies will be those of his own household. But we are commanded to love our enemies. So I would suggest to you from, from these points that when Jesus says, if anyone would come to me and follow me, he must hate his father, his mother, his wife, his children. What he's saying is, Choose me. You have to choose me. 
And if you don't, then, then you can't follow me. You can't be, you can't be my, my, my disciple. And so here's the rub for us. According to Jesus, in order to follow him, we must choose him over everything and everyone else. And as I thought about that a little bit this week, it occurred to me that that's an incredible claim to deity. I mean, I mean Jesus early on, you know, he says, you need to put God first. And now over here, he's saying, put me first. How do we reconcile those things? Well, it's easily reconciled by the fact of the reality that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he's God in the flesh. But according to Jesus, in order to follow him, we must choose him over everything and everyone. And that means that to do otherwise would make us guilty of idolatry. That's an old word. But I want you to think a little bit about the subject of idolatry with me this morning. Because do you suppose we could ever be guilty of making an idol out of our families? Come with me back to Genesis chapter 3. That's where Adam and Eve are in the garden. And God has told them not to eat from this tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the text tells us that the serpent tempted Eve, and Eve took the fruit, and she ate, and Adam, who was there with her, ate, and immediately the consequences of that act of disobedience is shown to be devastatingly obvious. But when God comes, well, let me back up a little bit. Um, back in ch- uh, the second week of the series, we spent a little bit of time talking about sin and how the Bible uh, uses different uh, terms and, and means for describing what's, what sin is and what constitutes uh, sin and and. Our, our sinfulness and our fallen, fallenness. Um, but one way to describe it in, in reading Genesis chapter 3, one way to describe it is to say that Adam chose Eve over God. And that is backed up in the text. If you look at verse 17 of Genesis chapter 3, I think we're going to project that. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, uh, God says to the serpent, your day's coming. And then he says to the woman, because you have done this, here's the consequences of your act. And then he turns to the man and he says to Adam, because you have listened to your wife. Now, I'm sure that most of us here would we'd be able to reach consensus on this that it's probably a good thing to listen to your wife. 
it would probably be, we would say it would be imperative that we listen to our wives. So what is this? And let me suggest to you then that what the text is getting at here is the fact that Adam followed Eve instead of leading her to follow him. And I don't mean Adam, I mean God. He followed her instead of leading her to follow him. He chose her over his creator God. So let me say a few other things here this morning. Husbands, if your wife encourages you to sin, say no. And it goes the other way too. Wives, if your husband encourages you to sin, just say no. I know that there have been cases where wives have said yes under the banner of submission to their husbands. And if that's you, cut it out. Stop it. You don't have to do that. You better not do that. It's the same principle as submitting to the government, right? It's the same principle as submitting to governing authorities. Choose him because you have a prior relationship that takes priority. And I think we need to press into this because if you think about, um, and I think we do have this uh, statement from Paul on, uh, that we can project as well, Romans chapter one, verse 25. Paul, Paul has this grand description there in Romans chapter one of the descent of man in uh, Romans chapter one. And he says this in verse 25. It says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. I wanna say this to you, friends, family, loved ones, no matter how wonderful your wife might be, no matter how wonderful your children might be, no matter how wonderful your parents might be, or no matter how wonderful, and I know they are wonderful, your family might be, they're human beings. So, if you're a parent, your child needs to know that God is more important to you than they are. Because God is more important to them than you are. And you can't promise them that you're always gonna be there for them as much as you wish you could as much as you would like to. But he, as we sang earlier, is faithful through generations. He can and he does promise to be there for them. But you cannot promise them that. Are you married? If you are, your wife or your husband 
They need to know that God is more important to you than they are. Why? In part, it's not the whole reason, but partly because he is more important to them than you are. Maybe you're not married. Maybe you just have a boyfriend or, or even just your friends. Your friend or your friends need to know that God is more important to you than they are. Because he is more important to them than you are. Your parents need to know that God is more important to you than they are. Because God is more important to them than you are. And you can fill in the blank. Your parents deserve to be honored, but they do not run your life. In fact, you don't even run your own life. This is the rub. This is the whole thing. You don't even run your, 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 your own life. That's why Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, his mother, and his wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to have a relationship with God through Christ? Now, remember when we, when we started this series, we... we uh, started with a message called Designed by God, the Origins of Family. Family was God's idea. God is not anti-family. Sin is anti-family. And the world can be very anti-family. But God is not anti-family. Jesus is not anti-family. This is a thought that occurred to me uh, a few weeks back that I thought I'd just throw out at you this morning, but I think it fits. But if you follow the thinking of the biblical teaching on marriage and family, if you follow the teaching, the biblical teaching on marriage and the family, then every child would not only be born into a loving, secure family, Every child would even be conceived in love. Now that concept is totally radical to the world. The common norms of the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s, right up to today's progressive ideology, are anti-family. Jesus' teachings were and are radical to the world. He said all kinds of radical things about life, love, and stuff, and relationships. And the world thinks you're crazy if you believe him. <laughs> When's the last time you said in, in public something like, you know what, I just love God. I just love Jesus. What kind of response do you get? 
Loving God more than anything or anyone might be the most radical thing that there is. And our children desperately need to learn this from us. And Jesus will radically change our lives if we give him the say over it. And he'll radically change our families. And it doesn't exclude hard work. It doesn't exclude thrift. It doesn't uh, exclude investment. And it doesn't exclude providing for your family. One last scripture, First uh, Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. This is the Apostle Paul. He says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for the members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. God's not anti-family. So how does this work? Well, it works like this. If you truly give yourself to Christ by giving him first place in your life, you will not neglect your family. You will honor your father and mother. You will love and respect your spouse. You will provide for and nurture your children. But it goes way beyond that. You won't just be able to do all these things. You will be enabled to do all these things. Because when we get our priorities straight and we get our loves in order, Everyone benefits. It's not that God doesn't care about these things. Would we even think for a second that God doesn't care about our families? What did Peter say? Cast your cares on him because he cares for you. I wonder this morning who might be here in this place that would be prepared to just stand up and say in their heart to God, God, please forgive me for not trusting you and trying to run my own life. I wonder who might be here this morning in this room that would be prepared to stand up on your feet and in your heart say to God, God, please forgive me for making anything, for giving anything first place in my life beside you. God, forgive me for continually climbing up on the throne of my life when it's supposed to be reserved for you only. It's a radical concept when you think of it because can we really trust God with that? Can you trust God with your family? Can you trust him with your own life? It's a radical concept. When you really think about it, it's probably the most radical thing you could, you could do. And the world will think you're just nuts. You're nuts. You're crazy. That's what Jesus calls us to. That's what he taught. Please pray with me. Lord in heaven, I thank you for the forgiveness 
that you offer us, we, we need your help with this, Lord, because we want to love you more than anything, more than anyone. But Lord, we confess to you that we need for your help. We need for you to give us the kind of faith that is lacking in our lives to be able to trust you with these things. Lord, you said that if we wanted life, we needed to, to be prepared to lose our lives. But if we lay, lose our lives, if we lay down our lives, if we give you that kind of authority and power and say in our lives that you give life. And then on the other hand, you said if we wanted to keep it, to hold on to it, that we would lose life. Lord, we confess to you that we don't always understand exactly some of these, how these things work, but we, we know that it's about trusting you. And so I thank you for these dear folks here today, Lord, and I pray that as they stand in your presence even now, that you might give each one of us the peace that passes understanding that comes when we really lay it down and trust you with all these things. Lord, we, we lay our families down today. We lay our possessions down today. We lay our lives down before you today. And we say together, Lord, please take full control of our lives. Thank you that you care for us and love us more than we possibly could even be able to love ourselves. We worship you, Lord Jesus. We exalt your name together here. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.